Hey all, and welcome to this special Independence Day deep-ish dive. With me, I'm a magnanimous taskmaster, so Chris has the week off. So it's just little old me talking for a really long time. Uh, if you're not nearly as too online as I am, you may have missed the latest developments in our Hellworld discourse. Uh, competing demonstrations in downtown Portland resulted in a series of conflicts and the eventual milkshaking and punching of media personality Andy No. You probably have questions. Who is Andy No? Who punched Andy? Why did they punch Andy? And do I care? But before I answer any of those questions, let me frame this essay. The question that I want to answer is deceptively simple. Should you punch Andy No? But before I can answer my question, I'll have to answer your questions. Section one, reactionary tourists and community self-defense. Before I go into detail about this latest action, let's discuss who was involved. First up, Patriot Prayer. Patriot Prayer is a right-wing group that claims affinity with President Trump, the police, and literal fascist governments. It was founded in 2016 by Joey Gibson, who is loosely described as a political activist. Gibson ran in the Washington State GOP primary for Senate in 2018. His platform was Spartan. Support President Trump, trigger the libs, and fight with anti-fascists in another state. At the end of the day, he garnered 2.3% of the vote. Now that may be because he spent a fair amount of time, quote, campaigning in Portland, which is odd because Oregonians can't vote in Washington's elections. But I'm sure these sorts of objections were probably well considered by Mr. Gibson, who was obviously a very serious candidate and not using a political campaign to raise his political profile and raise money for his non-campaign related activities. Gibson claims that Patriot Prayer is dedicated to, quote, freedom, love, and peace, unquote, and to liberating conservatives on the West Coast. Which is weird, because I'm pretty sure most West Coast conservatives are pretty well liberated and self-segregated from the liberal metropolises that they decry. But I digress. Though Patriot Prayer members attended the deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, Gibson spoke the day after that rally, disavowing many of the other more explicitly white nationalist slash supremacist groups that were there. His earlier actions had included groups like Identity Europa, which has since rebranded itself as the American Identity Movement. But after Unite the Right, their collaboration seems to have ended. During the Occupy ICE encampments, Patriot Prayer made at least one visit to Occupy ICE PDX, where they were filmed taunting occupiers and cheering the mayor's eviction order. Aside from actions that seem designed to cause violence, there isn't much else to Patriot Prayer. Gibson himself spends quite a bit of money on self-promoting apparel, like nearly every video and photo of him shows him wearing a piece of clothing with his name on it, either a shirt or a hat or something else. It's, it's... He gets a lot of stuff printed with his own name on it. It's very strange. In interviews, he portrays himself as a reasonable man who's only reacting to the moral decay of society. For me, the way that I'm trying to fix this government is that I'm trying to fix our culture. So 
Um, if our culture is filled with deception and corruption, then our government is too. I believe our government will follow our culture because we elect them. And so for me, I feel like there's a lot of things that we have to accomplish, Patriot Prayer and other people, um, before we really start taking on some of the issues in the government, um, especially, and obviously free speech. If we don't, if people are too afraid to say what they believe in, then that's when, that's, that's when tyranny takes over. But these statements are very at odds with a mountain of video evidence that shows his supporters with weapons and armor at actions. Though he is a resident of Washington, he tends to pick locations that are associated with more liberal culture, Portland and Berkeley specifically. Patriot Prayer also brings a religious message, hewing fairly closely to what I would call evangelical Christianity. Gibson often sports the fish logo associated with belief in Christ and talks at length about his religious experiences. He very strongly links patriotism and traditional Christianity. Joey Gibson, who lives in Vancouver and organized the gathering, gave a brief rallying talk to his supporters. Get together, build a family. You don't even have to do what we do, but go find something and change the world. That's the spirit that we got to bring back into this country. We're missing it. We're missing the fire that is in the heart. And I have missed that for 32 years. And now I'm here living, living my dream because I'm actually living the way that God built me to bring people out here like all you guys, all you guys. There's always a temptation to divide amongst us. You guys know who you are in this crowd here today. We have some dividers, it's okay. Let's learn, let's grow, let's be mature adults, and let's put our differences to the side. Put it to the side, because no one cares. No one cares about your drama. No one cares about your complaints. That's why you won't hear most of us complain. So let's come together, let's unite, and let's take on this great fight that we have in front of us. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's not even about those punks over there. It's not about that. They're just an obstacle. We got to get them out of the way so we can truly march the streets with thousands of people so we can actually come together with liberals, have conversations, learn and grow. That's a real obstacle. Patriot Prayer has also taken a very public stance against Islamic cultural organizations like the Council on American-Islamic Relations, or CARE, and some Patriot Prayer members have been investigated for making violent threats against CARE. The Southern Poverty Law Center does not list Patriot Prayer as a hate group, but has described them as trolling. Like many right-wing groups, Patriot Prayer espouses an affinity for the police and the military. They often obtain permits for their actions, perhaps in an attempt to weaponize law enforcement against the expected opposition. Holding a permitted action, as I've covered with ACE, obligates the police to protect you, especially if the opposition is unwilling or unable to get their own action permitted. And this can happen if you're going to have competing rallies where the police have an interest in maintaining order and will try and keep demonstrators and counter-demonstrators as far away from each other as they can. So in terms of today's rally, uh, you know, as it's turning out right now, what are your thoughts? Good. Police okay. are doing their job. This strategy of coordinating with the police is part of what has given Patriot Prayer such a wide latitude to operate. Aside from Gibson, the other most high-profile member of Patriot Prayer is probably Tusitala Tiny Tos. To be clear, the nickname is ironic, as Tosi is anything but tiny. At an August 2018 rally, Tosi was seen wearing a U.S. military-style ballistic helmet, a full face shield, and a shirt calling for communists to be thrown out of helicopters, an allusion to the Pinochet regime's practice of executing political opposition figures by putting them in a helicopter, flying them out over the ocean, and then throwing them out to their death. A series of troubling texts between a Portland Police Bureau officer and Gibson were recently released, and the cache contains some eye-raising exchanges that directly relate to their opposition to counter-protesters. 
Tosi was a frequent topic of conversation between Lieutenant Jeff Nia, PPB's commander for the Rapid Response Team, which patrols protests. Now, Tosi has a history of run-ins with the law, including some assaults. In one text on December 7, 2017, Nia asked Gibson if Tosi's, quote, court stuff is taken care of, end quote, apparently alluding to the fact that PPB officers ignored a warrant for Tosi at a previous action. Two days later, Nia texted Gibson to say, just to make sure that he, Tosi, doesn't do anything which may draw our attention. If he still has the warrant in the system, I don't run you guys, so I don't personally know, the officers could arrest him. I don't see a need to arrest on the warrant unless there is a reason. Other texts show Nia letting Gibson know about opposition protest locations and movements. PPB maintains that they attempt to communicate with all sides to get information and run an intelligence operation, but have had little luck talking with anti-fascist groups. During that August 2018 event, it's not hard to tell who the police are targeting, as their skirmish line always seems to face towards the thousands of counter-protesters, and munitions are only loose against Patriot Prayer's opposition. Affiliated groups like the Three Percenter Movement were also in attendance. Uh, these guys that we're about to hear from were wearing Kevlar and ballistic helmets like they were about to go into combat. I also talked with a supporter who drove here with friends from Yakima and the Tri-Cities. They are part of the Three Percenter Movement. Some of those guys, uh, they've split some of our members' lips open with crowbars taped under their shirts, uh, throwing rocks, and then with this one, there's rumors and conspiracies that they're going to be bringing firearms to this event. So what we have done is we are prepared for the worst, but we're hoping for the best. Uh, we do have ballistic gear on, but we do not have any firearms. All of our gear is primarily for medical attention. Trolling though it may be, Patriot Prayer's actions have generated a media buzz and a decent payday for Gibson. But it seems like this popularity is not as strong as it once was. Their distancing from more extreme racist groups seems more like a strategic calculation than an actual belief. Unite the Right showed that extreme violence doesn't carry well in the media, but without that more extreme element, there doesn't seem to be much committed support for a group that is trying to pull off centrist racism. But Patriot Prayer is only one part of the equation. The main organizer for the June 29th event, the, the event where Andy No got punched, was Haley Adams, who is herself a member of Patriot Prayer. She also started the Him Too movement. Now, the Him Too movement was kind of kickstarted by a now discredited tweet about a mom whose son, a veteran of the U.S. Navy, was now too afraid to date because of the fear of false rape allegations. In a moment of absolute internet brilliance, her son responded by noting that he is not afraid of women accusing him of rape because he's gay. The idea of him, too, has been around for a bit before that tweet, but this viral family drama really kicked it into high gear. If you don't know, him, too, is a cynical and ridiculous response to the Me Too movement that seeks to bring more awareness about the prevalence of sexual assault, rape, and harassment that women endure very regularly. Haley Adams has seized upon the ridiculous premise to create an offshoot of Patriot Prayer that aims to safeguard the uh, chastity, gentlemanliness honor, I, I don't know, but you, you get the gist, of men everywhere who now live in fear that a woman might misconstrue advice to smile or a friendly pat on the butt as something less than respectful and cry rape. 
Despite the fact that every bit of data shows that false rape allegations are incredibly rare, the Him Too movement has managed to amass a small following. In an internet age where men's rights activists and men going their own way, MGTOW, have created internet safe havens that have been hotbeds for harassment and spawned more than one mass shooter, it's not surprising that someone would see the potential to weaponize this masculine discontent. And also to use it for a bit of grift, because, you know, you know how easy is it to get guys who already feel locked out of the system and locked out of sex to support you by telling them, no, no, it's not your fault. The inaugural Hymn 2 demonstration in Portland in 2017 drew about 40 people to listen to totally 100% really, truly happen stories about false rape allegations. I started the Hymn 2 movement because I wanted to give a voice to men who have been wrongfully accused. When I say wrongfully accused, I mean anything. Men are, men are under attack in the U.S. I have received lots of questions. Why I'm being sexist? Him Too isn't just for men, it's for everyone. Him Too movement is to give these men a voice to tell their story as well. Yep. <sighs> everyone deserves a voice. I am not against the Me Too movement, but it is very clear to me to see Me Too is only focused on women. But I will add, Me Too movement has shown children to be quiet and not to come out right away if something inappropriate happens. Him Too encourages men and women to come out right away if something tragically happens. So you're not waiting 30 years or 32 more years down the road. Over, over the last couple months, over the last month and a half, just getting this event together has been overwhelming. For each and every single one of us, just for giving men a platform to speak on. Every time women say they want equality, Men are getting pushed aside. They can't have an opinion. They can't speak up. I see it. I'm on Twitter getting death threats. And cops, FBI are getting involved. And we will be taking legal actions towards those kind of people who support the Me Too movement. These protesters were met by about 350 counter-demonstrators. Eventually, police intervened and provided cover for Adams and her group to leave. In 2018, Haley and her collaborator Ashton Whitney visited Austin, Texas to give speeches about the plight of conservatives in America. We wanted to say we are the millennial conservative generation. Yeah! <laughs> what a lot of people don't understand is that people like me and Haley, we are the future. We are voting every single day. These kids from Florida right now, they're about to turn 18, which means they can vote. I mean, granted, they want 16 voters, which is not going to happen ever, ever have happened. <laughs> so, and what we're, what we're trying to say today is we need more millennial conservatives to start standing up and quit being afraid. Yeah. Because now is the time to stand up for your rights. Yeah. yeah. Before they try, before they take them away. Yeah. The reality is, guys, is that our future of our country right now is in the hands of people like me and Haley. But what also sucks is that the millennial generation—they're spoiled, they're lazy, and they don't seem to care about this country and everything that's been fought for it. The reality is, is that we need to start inspiring our children. When I mean children, I mean people who are like 21 in their parents' basement. <laughs> the thing is, I escaped that mindset. I'm from Berkeley. If it weren't for my grandfather who taught me the importance of fighting for what you believe in, for fighting for freedom of speech, for fighting our Second Amendment, I would not be standing on this podium today. In fact, I'd probably be in a sorority house somewhere crying that Bernie's not president. <laughs> and we have feminists today, feminazis today, that are trying to control and take over 
I have a feminist in my family, and they, and there's a big story behind it. They, there's a feminist in my family that was playing with the law, and they were go here. I got this. Hold on. You can. Hold on. I got this. I have a story for you. Okay, I have a I have a feminist with uh, within my family. She's a family member. She thought she was so much better than anyone else. She she was set on the prison system, dug herself into the prison prison business. She worked to give prisoners rights that they should have never had. Being a feminist and using uh, discrimination all the time landed her in some serious trouble. A prison riot broke out. They took her as a hostage. And how do you how do you think that went? She did she did make it out alive. And when she when she was asked, how do you feel about prisoners now? She looked over and said with an enraged face, kill them all. The moral of the story is they, these women that use their gender to get their way in life. And it's morally mostly millennials today. It's millennial women today. about women as well. It's not just women. It is the black communities. It is the Mexican immigrants. The same people they are using, you know, ironically enough, most of those Antifa kids are white. The reality is, they are trying to use these groups against us. They are putting us in smaller boxes, making us feel weaker, making us easier to control. And millennials are one of those boxes. The only difference with millennials is that they are your voters. They are the future. And if you want to keep this country intact, with every right on the Bill of Rights, teach your children. Amen. 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 And this is what we're fighting for today. It's for the future of our children when they grow up. Yes. Yeah. Y'all think I want to be making videos on YouTube? I should be married and pregnant by now. <laughs> so that was Haley first and then Ashton second. Now, there's not much else to be said about Haley Adams. She's taken Joey Gibson's self-promotion and false victimhood model, applied it to feminism, and garnered herself a small but not influential movement. Him Too isn't a standalone organization as much as it is an appendage of patriot prayer that seeks to weaponize a specific type of male fragility, but masks that behind female spokespeople. Ultimately, it's desperately cynical and craven, attacking victims and playing to the idea that white heterosexual men are under attack on all sides by the rising tide of equality. The last organization in this trifecta is the infamous Proud Boys, a pro-West fraternal organization that privileges masculinity and irony culture. A lot of ink has been spilled on this organization and its founder, Gavin McGinnis. It is worth noting that McGinnis has tried to distance himself from his own creation, perhaps to shed some of the white nationalist cred that he has garnered. Last year, McGinnis and his Proud Boys drew attention during an event in New York where McGinnis pantomimed cutting off a communist's head with a samurai sword, then his followers roamed Manhattan and assaulted protesters, leading to several arrests and some injuries. Originally, anti-fascists were blamed for the violence, but video evidence showed that the Proud Boys were the aggressors. McGinnis gained money and notoriety by founding Vice Magazine, which morphed into the brand Vice Media after his departure. Now, the Proud Boys were started in 2016, and the organization was announced on the website of Talkies Magazine, an extremist site where Richard Spencer, yeah, the alt-right coining dude Richard Spencer, was executive editor at the time. 
the Proud Boys have a four-tier membership structure that includes initiation rituals. So tier one is taking the loyalty oath. Uh, I'm not going to read it, but it's pretty terrible. Tier two is getting jumped in while reciting pop culture facts, and this can include being beaten until you can name five breakfast cereals. And you can also easily see this as mocking the idea of like street gang initiation, something that kind of rose to popularity during the scare of the war on drugs, uh, but has an internet irony boy twist on it. Tier 3 is getting a Proud Boy tattoo and forgoing masturbation. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. We're not going to do it now. Tier 4 is getting into a fight for the cause, i.e. attacking counter-protesters at an action, attacking Antifa, doing something to actually engage in street violence. The Proud Boys do not shy away from the label that they are chauvinists. In fact, it is a core part of their identity. Affiliation and admiration for the West is a core belief. It is this atavistic return to the white man's burden that forms their fraternal bond. Like Patriot Prayer, the Proud Boys outwardly reject explicit racism and extremism. McGinnis went so far as to excommunicate Jason Kessler, the main organizer behind the Unite the Right rally in 2017, from the organization and ordered his followers, i.e. Proud Boys, not to attend. Many Proud Boys still went to Charlottesville and still did terrible stuff there. Kessler might best be remembered for when his dad yelled at him for being an anti-Semitic idiot. It's a great clip. Big Orthodox crosses on their chest, as Dr. Duke likes to point out, is Jewish. The breaking houses are in Israel. Hey, you get out of my room! Hey, sorry, I'm having an issue here. Oh, oh, you got a drunk roommate there? Something like that. What's you like that in my room? Uh, I've got, a. Uh... Somebody who supports Orthodox, uh, Israeli, like, is, we're, we're at a crosshairs on that stuff. I don't agree with, there's, clean your room. I'm going to assume that's a parent there. I'm not sure. Uh, Jason, why are you staying with, you're not staying with an Orthodox Jew, are you? No, it's my father. He was the. Basically, the deal is, is my family watches American History Channel. Oh, yeah. And it's constant anti-German propaganda. The Nazis, uh, the, the Jews, like, and the dude, I'm, I'm stuck in a situation where I have to stay with my family because I'm paying for all these lawsuits and yeah. I can't afford to do that without staying with my family, but they, they're cut. The Southern Poverty Law Center describes the Proud Boys as a hate group. In 2018, it was reported that the FBI had also classified them as a hate group, but this was quickly withdrawn and, and credited to a misunderstanding by local law enforcement. Despite McGinnis leaving the group, he is still suing the SPLC over the designation. He's also suing his neighbors for wanting him to move because they don't like him in the neighborhood. Uh, apparently, he's as litigious as he is chauvinistic. A string of controversies has followed the Proud Boys throughout their existence. The Manhattan Club incident I mentioned earlier resulted in the arrest of three Proud Boys, at least. It may have, may have been more. I kind of uh, cut some corners on the research for this because it's not super important. Though NYPD said they were looking to arrest nine Proud Boys because of the violence after the meeting. In 2019, Reggie Axtell threatened Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler and threatened to demask Antifa members, basically trying to dox them and intimidate them into not showing up in public. Trump ally and all-around media eccentric Roger Stone has also kept close company with the Proud Boys. Stone has employed them as bodyguards, sat for social media pictures with them, and talked about his respect for the group. 
Stone is currently facing trial in connection with his activities in the 2016 election. Despite their use of violence and intimidation, the Proud Boys have also spawned an offshoot group called the Fraternal Order of the Alt Knights. Uh, This group was originally organized by Kyle Chapman, a.k.a. Based Stickman. Chapman, you may remember, gained fame in the 2017 Berkeley protests where he assaulted several counter-protesters with a wooden pole. He was arrested and charged with assault. Uh, The Proud Boys crowdfunded for his defense, and he was personally invited to join the group by McGinnis. The Proud Boys have also seen their reputation flag lately, especially as their higher-profile members leave or go quiet. But they're still seen around and have a firm base of support, though they have been shown several times that they are not welcome in every neighborhood. Uh, I'm thinking especially of their run-in with some DSALA folks at the Griffin, which is a really fun clip to listen to, too. And, and Irish people were slaves, just like the fucking black people. I want to hear that fucking talk shit. shit. All right, hey, I'll tell you right now. Oh, where, 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 where? Every time. Your fucking mouth. So that's a summary of the main right-wing organizations that are involved here. But I started this episode by specifically talking about Andy No. And I have to note that No does not claim membership in any of these groups, but he does have a habit of showing up at their events and seeming to take their side in most of the, you know, disputes or belief about who's in the right and who should be allowed to assemble. And this is an important point that I want you to keep in mind. No makes no bones about where his sympathies lie, and that matters when he is trying to cloak himself in the mantle of a journalist. Let's run down No's biography and journalistic credentials real quick. So Andy No was born and raised in Portland, Oregon. After high school, he matriculated to UCLA, then after graduation, went back to Portland to attend Portland State University to study political science with a focus on secularism and political Islam. At PSU, No was a writer and multimedia editor for the campus paper The Vanguard until he was dismissed. Now, this dismissal became a major point in Andy's career, as I'll discuss. This dismissal was motivated by a tweet on No's personal account that misconstrued a video of a Muslim student speaking about apostasy. This dismissal catapulted No into fame in the right-wing media, landing him a piece in the National Review, which he entitled, quote, Fired for Reporting the Truth. No represents his dismissal as related only to this tweet, to its popularity among right-wing outlets like Breitbart, and to the editorial staff at The Vanguard wanting to keep an image of political correctness. However, the editors at the Vanguard responded to this piece, specifically the National Review piece, and noted, quote, The problem was that he initially shared the quote as a standalone clip that summarized the speaker's point to say, apostates will be killed or banished in an Islamic state. This seems straightforward and simple enough, and from an ethical standpoint, was a dangerous oversimplification that violated very clear ethics guidelines by the Society of Professional Journalists, end quote. This dismissal came after a pattern of similar behavior. Vanguard editors identified several ethical lapses and breaches of trust, with this tweet just being the final straw. If nothing else, this event points towards what will become a continuing theme in No's career, weaponizing the perception of bias to gain credibility in more conservative spheres. A quick Google search for this controversy will return a host of sites that skew far to the right parroting the same line. No is being punished for piercing the veil of political correctness and nothing else. This false victimhood narrative will extend throughout the rest of No's career and has proven a lucrative strategy for him. No spent about a year as a contributing writer for the website Quillette before joining them as a sub-editor. I'll talk more about Quillette in a minute, but suffice to note that his employment there maps pretty squarely with his popularity among other conservative media publishers. In August of 2018, No published a piece in the Wall Street Journal that caused not only controversy, but exposed the root of his project. So this piece was titled, 
a visit to Islamic England. And in it, no details his trip to England through no-go zones that are ruled by Sharia law, alcohol-free neighborhoods, which are an affront to traditional English alcoholism, apparently, and the burgeoning problem of the Great Replacement. No begins the piece, quote, Other tourists may remember London for its spectacular sights and history, but I remember it for Islam. When I was visiting the UK as a teenager in 2006, I got lost in an East London market. There I saw women wearing head-to-toe black cloaks. I froze, confused, and intimidated by the faceless figures. End quote. And that sort of frames the entire piece, if not his worldview. Women who wear the niqab and are literally doing nothing more than shopping manage to petrify Andy. Now, I can only imagine how scared he must be when he sees riot police in full face shields and body armor, but for some reason, I guess that doesn't seem to deter him as much as civilians wearing clothes. Other great hits in this piece include Andy misunderstanding English drinking laws. At one point, he claims to have seen an alcohol-restricted zone sign and believes that this is the influence of the Muslim residents, when in fact it is an attempt to cut down on public drinking. So most English streets are open to alcohol, meaning you don't need to brown bag it if you want to have a beer on your way to the park or whatever. But places where this is proven problematic can have this restricted, which is what was happening in the Whitehall neighborhood that Andy visited. As Alex Lockie noted, quote, Honestly, I live around the corner from the zone, and it took me months to realize it was alcohol restricted. Before I read the sign on the pole highlighted by No, I first noticed a large mosaic depicting the Jewish Star of David on a planter directly outside the mosque, end quote. So I'm not going to be doing an entire reading of the whole article because A, the Wall Street Journal is behind a paywall and giving them money is a mortal sin, and B, because I want to spend some time exploring how No's work broadly plays on these same themes of xenophobic fear, fealty to Western culture, and manufactured outrage. Look, Noah's only been on the scene for about two years, and he's managed to create a steady stream of faux controversies. Getting bogged down in any single one of them would be missing the forest for the trees. In 2018, Noah invited James Damore, the former Google employee who was, quote, fired for truth, end quote, to give a speech at PSU. It seems like that keeps happening to some people, getting fired for telling the truth. Maybe someone should look into that. It seems like there might be, you know, an entire outrage machine to be funded off of that. But... Damore, as a reminder, published a lengthy and largely untrue memo about how Google was allowing gender equity to override better hiring. His long and tortured memo attempted to make the case that women are worse at coding and math, but that Google's desire for representation was hindering the truly gifted men that deserved more money and more promotions. Damore wants everyone to believe that he was fired solely for his odious views, when in fact he was fired for violating company policy by sending out a company-wide memo that he was not authorized to send. It probably didn't help that this memo was easily disproven and offensive, but violating your contract and employee code of conduct is generally a good way to get shown the door. Now, No used this event at PSU to create more faux outrage content when an inevitable protest occurred. I mean, this wasn't hard to predict. Thinking people don't generally like to have speakers on campus who think that they are less qualified because of sexist stereotypes. And this sort of frames No's career. Create controversy, film the results, claim that he is being oppressed because people are mad at him. In order to really discuss No, we have to discuss Quillette. So I'm going to weave this together by examining some of his work as a writer and editor at the premier outlet for the, quote, intellectual dark web. And what do I mean by intellectual dark web? Well, I mean the self-described selection of authors and journalists who hold and publish opinions that most people find to be ridiculous, prejudiced, and laughable, but that strike a minority as incredibly prescient. 
Rather than saying their lack of popularity is a function of the poor content, the roundtable of the dark web has decided that they are victims of a grand conspiracy to silence them. Quillette was founded by Claire Lehman, an Australian writer with a penchant for lucrative outrage, because she innocently published a terrible study by a right-wing academic that resulted in Adam Waffen publishing multiple death lists of journalists. Honestly, not something that anyone should get bent out of shape about, right, Claire? When pressed on her complicity in helping literal Nazis compile a list of targets, Claire disavowed any responsibility, claiming that as the publisher, she isn't responsible for what gets published in the paper she literally runs. Look, these folks aren't really all that on the ball about what constitutes responsibility, but it seems like they generally feel that they should be rewarded for anything good and seen as not accountable for anything bad. To digress from Mr. No for a second, this particular study was put together by Progdad, a.k.a. Owen Lenahan, a disgraced academic who gained some fame by posing as an over-the-top progressive father to troll the libs with a funhouse version mirror of themselves. On May 15, 2019, Lenahan published a tweet with an accompanying graphic purporting to show the links between prominent journalists and Antifa. To call the graphic inscrutable is to severely overestimate its scrutability. The graph is a low-res mass of dots and lines that proves nothing more than a lack of data mapping skills. The tweet immediately caught the attention of sites like The Daily Wire, which is Ben Shapiro's project, and Red State, published by known sane person and two-first-name haver Eric Erickson. Within a day or so, Adam Waffen had created YouTube videos that were nothing more than low-production-value hit lists, basically showing pictures of the journalists and their names who are listed in the Lenahan article and implying that they should be murdered. Linehan refused to show his work on how he came to his conclusions, claiming that he was submitting the article to a journal and claiming that the journal has a policy that you couldn't publish your research before they published the article. In a fantastic bit of trolling, that journal, uh, social networks in this case, responded that they had no such policy and Linehan could publish his research if he wanted to. So far, he has not. And while this digression was hilarious, it also points to the Quillette branding that No plays so well on create a perception of threat, play to the outrage to gain momentum, refuse to address criticisms, lob escalating accusations back, lather, rinse, repeat. To add one more point to this weaponization of the media, it was reported this year that Andy attempted to film a DSA sign-up sheet at a Portland May Day rally, effectively doxing the people who had signed up with the local DSA. Now, these sheets, you've probably seen them before at rallies and marches or, or any event you've gone to, but they generally include names, phone numbers, and email addresses. This is enough information to find someone and to intimidate them if one is so inclined. This is part of the pattern, to use his position as a member of the press to demand access to private information that can be used by others. It's basically violence one step removed. So let's talk about what Andy's done at Quillette. And in order to kind of cover that briefly, I want to give a selection of his recent headlines. Uh, first off is Denmark's Blaspheming Mother. So this article purports to tell the story of Jale Tavakoli, a mother facing losing her child because she rejects Islam, or at least that's Andy's framing. Now, no conveniently doesn't mention that Tavakoli is under investigation for sharing a violent anti-Islam video on social media along with 14 other people. Next is A Night Out with a Muslim and an Atheist. This is a film review of a documentary featuring Sam Harris and Majad Nawaz. No spends all of a line mentioning the pair's reputation for Islamophobia, but an entire paragraph on the other intellectual dark web figures who were in attendance at the film's premiere. 
Next, we have a racial shakedown in Portland, which attempts to add a counter-narrative to the phenomenon of white people calling the cops on black people. Uh, Aside from accusing a Portland alt-weekly of race-baiting, it blithely ignores statistics about the deadliness of police encounters for people of color, the propensity for calling the authorities over minor transgressions, and finishes on this absolutely amazing line. Quote, in a city whose guilty whites seem ready to roll over on any pretext, no complaint is too absurd to become fodder for race hustling. End quote. I I guess it takes one to know one, Andy. Next up is Jordan Peterson rallies Portlandia's dissidents. Uh, not today, Satan. You can probably guess what the content is here. And lastly, we have, at this Portland bakery, white guilt poisons the batter. This is another racialized story that elides the actual discussion of the incident at the Back to Eden Bakery. It's No's response to this latest story that caught my attention uh, when he was asked by a journalist, are you alt-right? He responded, quote, LOL. I laugh not because this is a light matter, but because the charge is so outrageous. I've worked hard to unmask the odious idea of white nationalists when they try to recruit on my campus. I think it's a huge tragedy that racialist identity politics appears ascendant right now. I see it dividing my peers and neighbors, regardless of it serving white, brown, or black group interests. Being called alt-right is a tactic to collapse all criticism, whether legitimate or not, so that others don't listen to you. And this is a key point here. No never says, no, I'm not alt-right. He simply responds, what a ridiculous question. It seems that if he were truly not alt-right, No would have no problem leading with no and then explaining. But he doesn't. Second, he decries racialist identity politics, which seems a little strange, but I'll unpack that one later, so put a pin in that. Third, Andy cites an article that he wrote supposedly exposing white supremacist organizing on campus for the Vanguard. But what he fails to mention is the section in that article that explicitly says not all alt-right groups are white nationalists or white supremacists, only that they like Western culture a lot. I guess he figured people probably wouldn't bother to read his article. And last, perhaps the reason no doesn't simply say no is because it's pretty obvious who he associates with. Both Patriot Prayer and the Proud Boys have at times described themselves as alt-right, only to abandon that label when it became a burden. And we've seen this tactic before. Even Richard Spencer, the man who literally coined the term alt-right, has disavowed the term because it no longer plays well in the press. No's habit of showing up at Patriot Prayer and Proud Boy actions makes it fairly clear which side he's interested in boosting. He isn't showing up at Cedar Riot to give a fair view of the gathering. He showed up with the reactionaries because he wanted the response. He didn't go in good faith as a journalist. He went to generate faux outrage content to show only the explosive result of pushing buttons. Okay, so this has been a long walk. Let's actually talk about Andy getting punched. Section 2. Let's do some world building. On Saturday, June 29th, Patriot Prayer and their offshoot, the Hymn 2 Movement, staged a demonstration in downtown Portland, Oregon. Now, these groups have staged similar actions in the past, both by themselves and in collaboration with other like-minded folks. They bring out their own supporters as well as opposing counter-protesters. It's probably worth noting that in pretty much every action, they've been outnumbered by the opposition. 
Last year, on August 4th, Patriot Prayer held a Unite the Right-style demonstration that resulted in several injuries from street skirmishes and police use of force. While alt-right, proto-fascist, and outright white supremacists gathered to listen to speeches, thousands of counter-protesters gathered across from the park. After the event concluded, Portland Police Bureau, PPB, unleashed non-lethal munitions, tear gas, pepper balls, and pepper spray to disperse the counter-protesters. Perhaps the most recognized visual from these actions is the helmet of a counter-protester split open by a non-lethal munition fired by the police, apparently in direct contravention of how that weapon is supposed to be used. To add a big exclamation point to the August 4th meeting, before everything started, Portland police discovered a group of Proud Boys on top of a garage overlooking the event area. The group was in possession of several long rifles. Now, the guns themselves are not illegal, but what is concerning is that the guns were not allowed at the event location. The park was a no-gun area. Initially, these guns were seized by police, but no citations were issued or arrests made. Later, the guns were returned. Joey? Hey, Christine with KGW. Was wondering if I could talk to you as we walk, if you're trying to head somewhere. Okay. Okay, and I know, um, you know, you might have gotten some flack. I know you did a Facebook Live about the guns yeah. thing. Um, you know, what is your response to people who say that, hey, bringing guns might incite violence and... We always have guns. Sorry? We always have guns. And what about I the... Didn't, I didn't ask people to bring it. I just said we always have guns, so... Like at other rallies and things, right? At every single rally, we can still carry. Okay, yeah, and... Can still carry. Everybody can, I mean, tons of people can still carry. Okay, and in regards to the Proud Boys, um, you know, a lot of people... The Southern Poverty Law Center categorizes that group as a hate group. Yeah. What would you say? What's that? Uh, Southern Oregon or Southern Poverty Law Center has categorized the Proud Boys as a hate group. Southern Poverty Law Center is probably one of the worst sources you can ever go. That's why they're getting sued by many organizations. If you're pro-life, you're a hate group. If you're against gay marriage, you're a hate group. Ask Southern Poverty Law Center how many people on the left do they call out? How many people on the left do they call as hate groups? It's a biased group and they raise money. They raised $150,000 off of me when I went down to San Francisco by slandering my name. They opened up a GoFundMe account, raised $150,000. It's all about money, and they're not going to last very long. I'm bringing up this action in particular, though there have been several violent demonstrations in the recent past, to set the stage for Saturday. Patriot Prayer and their allies have chosen Portland as their battlefield, even though few of them live there. Groups like Patriot Prayer travel from Washington often. Other groups bring people from across the country to attend. It is the resistance, the counter-protesters who live in Portland. And this is an important point to make. The reactionary forces that are looking to cause trouble are imported. They're traveling to Portland to make as much trouble as they can. They could march in rural Washington and face much less resistance. They could travel to solid red states and probably not have even the slightest chance of violent opposition. But they don't. They choose Portland because they want to set off as much conflict as they can. It doesn't hurt that they have willing help from PPB, which has shown much restraint dealing with reactionary tourists, and almost no restraint dealing with the people of Portland who show up to counter-protest. But let's get back to the details of Saturday the 29th. Around noon, the various groups began gathering at their respective starting points. Anti-fascist counter-protesters began with a vegan milkshake dance party in Lounsdale Square. 
Him too, Patriot Prayer, and the Proud Boys congregated at Pioneer Square. It should be noted that there was also a Patriot Prayer action scheduled in Washington that same day, which may explain why some of the more well-known members of Patriot Prayer were not in Portland. During the dance party, Andy No was present and streaming. He was particularly interested in getting faces on camera and did not take kindly to folks who did not want him to be there. Lots of Antifa here. Ready to fight. Antifa blocking me again. Every cup here has the Antifa logo on it. The three arrows. They don't want me recording. More Antifa. They're blocking me from recording. Yep. Can I help you? You can stop recording. Public protest. He seemed particularly interested in getting faces on camera and did not take kindly to folks who did not want to be filmed. He was told several times to stop filming, and several people blocked his shots with their signs and backs. Andy replies to this, it's a public protest, using the latitude that he has to justify clearly antagonistic journalism. Anti-fascists concluded their vegan milkshake dance party and marched to Waterfront Park. The Hymn 2 action numbered about 30 people. This included several people wearing press hats, though it's doubtful that they actually belong to any media organization. While counter-protesters stood around at Waterfront Park, the sprinklers were turned on. This seems to have done very little to deter them, and instead gave many the chance to cool off on a very warm June day. As the several hundred strong counter-protests moved, the group walked in traffic lanes, often met with police commands to get on the sidewalk or face arrest. Based on reporting after the fact, it doesn't seem that anyone was arrested for not being on the sidewalk, though that sort of thing has happened before. Around 1.35, Andy Noe was live-streaming from the middle of the counter-protesters. His commentary is somewhat dry, but incredibly slanted. His stream ends pretty abruptly, and he doesn't explain why. Other video from the march appears to show at least one counter-protester grabbing the cord to his phone, and his phone tumbling to the ground. This is accompanied by people shouting at him. During the short melee, it's clear that this is not a coordinated attack. Several marchers intervene to de-escalate and shield Andy. He is quickly pushed out from the body of the march, though a few more milkshakes fly at him, as well as some silly string, and then he walks away. After this, Andy visited the ER. On social media, pictures of Andy's injuries began quickly propagating, coupled with the claim that he had suffered a brain hemorrhage. Despite this grievous injury, Andy was released about 12 hours later. Instead of being a very important event in the day, this seems to have caught the notice of almost no one else in the march as they continued towards Pioneer Square without interruption. When the counter-protest finally reached Pioneer Square, they were blocked by Portland police and Multnomah County Sheriff's deputies clad in riot gear. The counter-protesters were warned that since they lacked a permit to block traffic lanes, they could be subject to arrest and, quote, riot control agents and impact weapons. Cops are bastards! 
During the standoff, members of the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer stood behind officers, hurling taunts at the counter-protesters and egging them towards a physical confrontation. Several small fights broke out between the groups, but it doesn't seem like many serious injuries resulted on either side. In total, three people were arrested, one for assaulting a police officer and two others for harassment. Aside from Andy, there was another confrontation between at least one person known to be antagonistic towards anti-fascist protesters in Portland. Sam Resnick claims that he was also assaulted, and this resulted in an attack on a man who came to his aid. You may recognize the name Sam Resnick. He was active in organizing circles both in Portland and Los Angeles. I know of his reputation from his time at Occupy Los Angeles, where he was accused of assaulting at least one woman. Since then, there have been many reports of his behavior that have made him a pariah in organizing and activist circles. Sam claims that while walking to Starbucks, he was targeted by counter-protesters. In his own statements, Sam says that he was wearing an American flag dress in an attempt to be an ironic patriot and blend in with the right-wing action. He claims no affiliation with Patriot Prayer or other groups, but says that he regularly attends their actions as only an observer, an explanation that strains credulity in my opinion. To add to this, it appears that Resnick was arrested in front of a Portland ICE facility in 2018 for crossing a police line meant to separate ICE protesters from counter-protesters. Resnick apparently crossed the line as part of a move to get arrested intentionally. It seems odd that part of observing means getting arrested with the people you are only observing, but then again, credulity can only strain so far. During this assault near the Starbucks, a man named John Bloom apparently saw what was happening and rushed to Resnick's aid. Bloom and Resnick claimed that Bloom was beaten by a metal baton and left bloody. Now, some of this is true. Bloom was left bloodied, but it's unclear if he was struck with the baton. Another thing that is clear is that Bloom brought an extending metal baton to the march and was seen charging counter-protesters and instigating fights. Much like No's account, Bloom was able to quickly gain visibility on social media as a victim of left-wing violence. Though this was fairly quickly countered by images of Bloom wielding his baton in at least one melee. After the incident, PPB tweeted out that No had been hit by a milkshake that was mixed with quickcrete, quick-drying concrete, implying that this was not just a vegan drink, but instead a potentially deadly weapon. PPB said a source had provided the information, but never named the source or their affiliation. Uh, after incredulous social media users took them to task, they released evidence in the form of an email they received that contained the super-secret Antifa milkshake recipe. Uh, it's immediately obvious when you read this email that it's a joke. Uh, but even beyond that, the email was received two hours after the original tweet. So, cause and effect, uh, I guess PPB needs a refresher course. One last thing to note. Mixing concrete into a milkshake wouldn't actually work. Uh, sugar stops concrete from hardening. Uh, French resistance groups used this strategy to stop prison construction in the 70s. So for, for your own like chemistry knowledge, if you dump two pounds of sugar into a ton of concrete, it will stop it from bonding. So you don't need a lot of sugar to stop like the concrete chemical process to actually become hard. Despite the lack of any eyewitness accounts of the milkshakes looking like concrete or video evidence of concrete in the milkshakes or any blunt force trauma from the milkshakes, PPB decided to publish the hot tip anyways. In the end, officially eight people were treated for minor injuries during the marches. Four of these were PPB officers. At least two of the officers were hit with pepper spray, though reports seemed to indicate that they were hit by friendly fire from other cops. A third officer was punched in the arm, and a fourth officer was hit in the head with some kind of projectile, but who threw it is not disclosed, and their injuries didn't seem significant. Presumably the other four are civilians, but the extent of their injuries wasn't widely disseminated, so I couldn't find much info on it. 
that pretty much wraps up the day as it went kind of blow by blow. Section three, the dust never settles if you keep kicking. Joining me now is Andy No. You saw him there in the video. He suffered serious injuries at the hands of some Antifa protesters. Andy, just tell me what happened. The news cycle after the march was dreadfully predictable. Andy No has basically been on every cable news network. He did Ben Shapiro's podcast, and he got to publish a piece in the Wall Street Journal. Now, one would think that the Wall Street Journal would be wary after Andy's last article was lambasted by pretty much everyone with any knowledge of contemporary England, but I guess they decided to give him a second chance. The villain was identified in the headlines and segment titles. It was Antifa. Less discussed is exactly what Antifa is. So I know this is already pretty long, but we're going to divert down what is Antifa wrote. So Antifa is short for anti-fascist. In the media, Antifa is generally shorthand for a group of people who are organized counter-protesters wearing masks and black clothing. But this is wrong. Antifa isn't the name of a group, though some groups do use it in their name. Antifa is an ideological stance. Think of it this way. Proud Boys are a group. Alt-right is an ideological stance. There are alt-right groups, but there is no alt-right HQ. There are groups like Rose City Antifa, a group that I cite only because they already have a fairly public profile, which organize around anti-fascist principles, but there is no hierarchical structure that dictates who and who is not Antifa. If we look at the Proud Boys, we see a fairly strict structure. They literally have an elder council. The same doesn't exist in modern anti-fascist organizing. Anti-fascist organizing stretches all the way back to Europe in the 1920s. As fascist movements and governments rose, people rose in opposition. Throughout the rise of fascism and World War II, anti-fascists engaged in political and military resistance. Anti-fascists fight fascism. But this doesn't really provide a coherent ideology. Communists, social democrats, conservatives, pacifists, and centrists have all claimed anti-fascist tendencies. This isn't to suggest that there is some unbroken line of political or organizing history in anti-fascism. More to explain that being anti-fascist or having anti-fascist tendencies is only one part of a political or organizing project. That being Antifa doesn't encapsulate an entirety, but is just one part of a greater structure. But that doesn't make good Chiron, so instead we see a conflation of a tactic with a political ideology. Quote, black-clad Antifa, unquote, and quote, masked anti-fascists, unquote, are breathlessly talked about as though those are meaningful statements. What these headlines are actually describing is black block. Black block is a tactic, Antifa is an ideology, and these are important distinctions. Black block refers to the practice of having a group of people all dress in black with masks to make it harder to identify them. The tactic was developed in Western Germany in the late 1970s in order to check police surveillance. If you want to create a disturbance or want to engage in something that might get you arrested, black block makes it harder to identify individuals. It makes it less likely that you can be identified and arrested, or if you are arrested, that you can be convicted. Well, sure, the guy throwing the brick through the bank window was wearing all black, and I was wearing all black, but so were a thousand other people, so it could have been anyone. Reasonable doubt. It's important. Originally, this was a tactic to thwart the police, but it has taken on a new life with the growth of social media and omnipresent cameras. As Andy Noe has shown, doxing can be a powerful tool of intimidation. When groups like Patriot Prayer and the Proud Boys threaten to identify and find counter-protesters, maintaining anonymity is important. Masking up, wearing similar black clothing, moving in groups, all make it easier to keep your identity secret and provide a layer of protection. 
This isn't so much paranoia when Patriot Prayer wears shirts offering helicopter rides to Antifa or people like No publish videos of protests asking to identify anyone on camera. As we discussed earlier, No has tried to dox people interested in DSA. Information is powerful and it's portable. With that in mind, let's talk about the media response because, uh, spoiler alert, it's terrible. Almost immediately, the video of Andy getting punched gained media attention. Jake Tapper accused Antifa of regularly attacking journalists, the implication being that Andy is on the side of democracy while counter-protesters are not. Of course, a cursory understanding of who stood on which side of the line would reveal how silly that notion is, but CNN isn't paying for common sense. Tucker Carlson invited Andy on to discuss his trauma. He was at an Antifa rally over the weekend, minding his own business, covering the news. He's a journalist. When he was beaten almost to death by Antifa, wound up in the hospital. He just got out and joins us now on this program. We're happy to see him. Andy, I'm glad you're capable of doing this interview. Tell us what happened. On Saturday, documenting this protest that was organized by Antifa and its allies, we were a literal stone's throw away from Portland's most important institutions of the rule of law, the courthouses, um, the sheriff's office, the central police precinct, while hearing people chant, no hate, no fear, I'm suddenly bashed on the back of my head from behind. Mm. And from there, I've, I'm a very passive person. I've never been in a fight. It took me a few seconds to realize that I was actually even hitting my head. When I realized what was happening, it was too late. Um, a mob of people, all dressed in black and wearing masks, started beating me with their fists. And some of them used objects to hit me. I don't know how many people were involved. It, seemed like 5, 10, 15, or 20. It could have been that many. Um, they beat me so much that I lost control of my GoPro camera that I was holding, which was then stolen from me. And when I thought it was over, I was wrong. Um, I put my arms up to try to shield my face as well as to signal to them that I was surrendering and that I uh, wasn't there to fight. But that really signaled to them to be more aggressive. So then they started dumping what I believe were milkshakes and eggs, throwing it at my face, which blinded me so I couldn't see. And I was kicked some more, punched some more. And all this time I kept thinking, where are the police? I could still see the Monoma County Justice Center in front of me, but no police ever arrived. I eventually stumbled away, bleeding, um, across the park, and I lost my balance, so I sat down on the ground in front of the courthouse. And from there, a medic SWAT team informed me that in order to get an ambulance to be taken to a hospital, I would have to walk to the police precinct. In other words, walk back in the direction of the demonstrators who just attacked me. Later that night, after Arriving in the emergency room, I had a CT scan, which confirmed that there that I was diagnosed with um, a brain hemorrhage. From which you're suffering neurological damage. Just to remind our viewers, this is the group that CNN's primetime anchors have defended and promoted. 
I saw that Andrew Yang, who's running for president as a Democrat, bless him, uh, attacked Antifa for this. Have you received any other support very quickly from any other Democratic office holders in Portland or nationally? Not that I know of. Not that I know of. What? That tells you everything. And, you know, we're, we're happy that you're at least capable of joining us tonight. That's a shocking story, an enraging story. Um, we wish you the best on your recovery. We hope you come back. Thank you. Andy and his defenders are quick to note his race and sexual orientation. Remember when I mentioned earlier that we'd discuss his objections to racialized identity politics? No? Yeah, it was a while ago, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I said it. Andy is quick to note that he is both gay and Asian, two things that literally shouldn't matter in his worldview. He has spilled gallons of ink about how hate crime hoaxes are all the rage, but then flees to his own sexuality and race to explain why he shouldn't be treated harshly in these situations. As Bell Hooks said, and this is a bit of a paraphrase, your identity shouldn't define your politics. Your politics should define your identity. Andy wants to have it both ways. He wants to mock black people for pointing out racism, but he wants everyone to know that he checks enough diversity boxes to be a protected person. We know that's not how it works. It's not the Oppression Olympics. It's not a competition to be more victimized. It's about understanding how trauma functions, how society dysfunctions, and how we can dismantle those inequalities. Weaponizing identity to protect your status in the outrage machine is predictable, but it is cynical, and it is destructive, which is exactly what Andy is trying to achieve. On Twitter, the hashtag Antifa Terrorist began to trend. Again, Google is free, and if one wants to Google who is doing more killing, it doesn't take long to learn that it's not Antifa. The Anti-Defamation League released a report on extremist violence in the U.S. in 2018. Of the 50 deaths that they linked to extremists, the ADL found that 48 of them were caused by right-wing extremists and two were caused by Islamic extremists. Globally, the body count for 2019 will show similar trends. The New Zealand shooting alone claimed the lives of 59 people and injured 49. The shooter's manifesto made it obvious which side of the ideological divide he is on. And he's on Andy No's side. He's on the side of far-too-online irony boys. His manifesto was awash in internet jokes, in ironic references, in self-referential nihilism, and absurdist chauvinism. To make it more serious, he's not unique. The Quebec mosque shooter identified Ben Shapiro as an influence. A man and wife who tried to burn down a mosque similarly identified Ben Shapiro as an inspiration. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised that No was invited on the Ben Shapiro podcast to discuss how anti-fascists are the real terrorists. This cycle will continue. It always does. Because it's an easy sell. If Crank T. Nelson can get booted from Twitter for joking about Antifa super soldiers and Fox News can sell ads with the controversy, we know the gatekeepers of the media have no idea what they're doing. Michelle Malkin? ever the helpful person, sprang into action for Andy by launching a GoFundMe for his medical bills. At the time of recording, it has raised at least $193,000. Now, I'm not sure what kind of health insurance Quillette provides, but I can't imagine that 12 hours in the ER will cost $193,000. I mean, it's not like he was at Zuckerberg Family General Hospital. And that's the ultimate aim here. It's pure grift. Antifa can't be defeated because it's not an actual thing. It's not an organization. It can be a ready and easy villain whenever somebody needs it. If people show up in their own defense, they can easily be transformed from neighbors into enemies, from defenders to attackers. As long as someone like Andy No can gain credibility among corporate media figures, he will be protected by the blanket of journalism. Meanwhile, the counter-protesters, who are also live-streaming, doing exactly what Andy was doing in the situation, are lumped in with the faceless, angry mob. 
We see this more and more. Reactionaries wearing press hats because they know that it's a joke. It's a perception and reaction cycle. There is no real interrogation of the intent. There's just the label. Who counts and who doesn't and who gets to make that decision. And to be clear, many journalists are in danger. They're targeted by governments, the military, and organized crime across the globe. We've seen investigative journalists investigated, arrested, and assassinated. Doing the work to expose the truth is not safe, but we can't let that reasonable assertion blind us to the fact that there are people with bad intentions who will play on that. Andy No didn't expose the Panama Papers or leak U.S. military secrets. He showed up at a march where he was not welcomed. It wasn't an accident. He didn't get lost and stumble upon the counter-protest. He sought it out, put himself in the middle of it, and was hoping for this outcome. Allowing corporate media to grant him credibility as a journalist is a disservice to the people who put their lives on the line and have lost their lives fighting actual power. True journalism punches up. Andy has made a career of punching down. Section 4. Don't worry, tomorrow will be worse. I can't be sure what the future holds, and as I've told many clients when I worked for a brokerage firm and they were losing money, past performance is no guarantee of future performance. But I'd also send them prospectuses that relied on past performance to explain why you should trust Solomon Smith Barney with their money. Uh, So I guess what I'm saying is the financial services industry is a scam and you shouldn't give them your money. But what I'm also saying is that we can make some falsifiable predictions about our cast of characters. Andy Noe is going to continue to see his star rise among the outrage crowd. He'll show up at more events, he'll put himself in the middle of counter-protesters, he'll invite intellectual dark web figures to places they aren't welcome, he'll publish racialized ridiculousness, and he'll laugh all the way to the bank. As will his enablers like Claire Lehman and Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro. It's a lucrative business, and it's easy. The muddier the lines get, the easier it is to stake any ground as your own and to shift it at your will. Now, Patriot Prayer will probably keep picking fights, but probably won't ever become the major force that Joey wants. It lacks the extremism of other groups, and it lacks the cohesive ideology to ever really gain power. Joey will probably still get decent money from his grift, but he'll never set the zeitgeist. The Proud Boys will continue to morph into a more violent and paramilitary group. They were already weaponized white male fragility, the sharpened version of the white man's burden. The name will hold, or it won't, it doesn't matter. They've created a space for angry white guys to get together and act like a gang. They've shown that it's possible to have a media presence to say the right words to get enough legitimacy to be taken seriously. And they've shown that they can win the first round of the media narrative. Vice magazine went from hipster softcore porn with knockoff Hunter S. Thompson articles to a fully owned property of News Corp with shows on HBO. These models aren't that different. Start at the fringe, learn to play the game, work your way to the center without really changing the core. And what about Antifa? Well, we're going to keep organizing. Everyone I just mentioned is going to keep organizing. Anti-fascist, anti-capitalist, general enemies of injustice can't stop either. It's simple. We can win because we aren't beholden to a group or to a hierarchy. We're beholden to the promise of a better world. Section 5. Okay, you gregarious idiot. Should I punch Andy? No. I promised that I would answer that question for you, but not just yet. The tolerance paradox was proposed by Karl Popper in his book, The Open Society and Its Enemies. This work of philosophy attempts to explain how a tolerant, democratic society can fall to the forces of fascism and how society can stop that from happening. 
It's a problem, right? If we say that all ideas are valid and worth hearing, then how can we say that racism, sexism, classism, xenophobia, and the like are not allowed? If we are tolerant, then we have to tolerate everything and just let the marketplace of ideas sort it out, right? No. Open societies have to understand that some ideas only seek to undermine those very societies. A democracy that allows fascists a seat at the table is guaranteeing that the steak knife will end up at someone's throat. Despite conservative claims that we simply can't objectively know what is hate speech and what isn't, it's actually quite easy. We allow ideas that include everyone, that harm no one, and we bar the ideas that don't. I can respect your ideas unless your ideas are rooted in someone else's dehumanization. As Popper wrote, quote, Unlimited tolerance must lead to the disappearance of tolerance. If we extend unlimited tolerance even to those who are intolerant, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed, and tolerance with them. We should therefore claim, in the name of tolerance, the right not to tolerate the intolerant. End quote. We don't need to give Andy and his views a seat at the table. We can see them for what they are. But should we punch him when he tries to sit down? Yeah, probably not. It's exactly what he wants. It's more fuel for the outrage machine, and his black eye makes a good prop when he does the cable news rounds. So what should we do? Block his camera. Don't let him film your comrades' faces. Don't let him near your lists. Don't pretend that his press pass is the sign of a legitimate journalist. Don't let him pretend that freedom of the press grants him access to every venue that he wants to enter. Don't let him shove a mic in anyone's face. A quick tip is to play copywritten music out of your phone, like play a Disney track on his live stream. YouTube will take that right down. Scream to scuttle his audio. Use a megaphone to drown it out. They all have siren sounds. Just go play that next to his microphone so he can't actually do his job. Be a nuisance, a gadfly, an annoyance that also stops him from making any usable content because that's what he's there for. You can scuttle his job before he's able to do it. In short, and short of assaulting him, don't let him do his job. Make him feel unwelcome. Make him feel your contempt. Make him feel impotent and unimportant. Make him feel that we won't tolerate his intolerance. So if you see Andy doing his thing, you shouldn't run over and punch him. It's just, you know, probably not the most effective thing. It also helps him gain like $100,000 in donations. But you probably shouldn't care too much if he does get punched. It's low impact. It's a non-issue. But it is giving him what he wants. The outrage machine is going to churn on. That's not the danger, though. The danger is the fascists in the wings, the ones waiting for the leash to be taken off. Andy is here to help them get the leash off, to show that we are the danger and that we must be put in check. Every time Andy gets punched, the leash gets a little bit looser. The bar to fascist violence gets a little bit lower. Community defense matters. That includes being strategic and tactical. Punching Andy is neither of those things, and it threatens the real work being done to protect our communities. Be outraged, be angry, but be smarter than the fascists. So that pretty much concludes my essay. Uh, Thank you all for listening. I know this has been a really long walk, but I hope it's been informative. Uh, I'll be back next week with the news with Chris, and if the opportunity presents itself, I'll be back with another one of these deep dives. Uh, You can always email us at podcast at groundgamela.org with comments, questions, concerns, suggestions, uh, just to tell us how you're doing, uh, and we'll definitely get back to you. Other than that, thank you very much for your time. Look out for each other. We're going to make it through this.
we're going to survive, and we're going to thrive. Information is power, but like all power, there are those who want to keep it for themselves. Information is power, but like all power, there are those who want to keep it for themselves. There are those struggling to change this. We can all of us around the world. We'll not just send a slow message of holding the privatization of knowledge. We'll make the passing of the past. Will you join us? Large corporations, of course, are blinded by greed. The laws under which they operate require it. Their shareholders would revolt at anything less. And the politicians they have brought off back them, passing laws giving them the exclusive power to decide who can make copies. There is no justice in following unjust laws. It's time to come into the light and, in the grand tradition of civil disobedience, declare our opposition to this private theft of public culture. There is no justice in following unjust laws. There is no justice in following unjust laws. There is no justice in following unjust laws. Activist and hacker Jeremy Hammond was sentenced to 120 months behind bars. Activist and hacker Jeremy Hammond was sentenced to 120 months behind bars. Jeremy Hammond was sentenced to 120 months behind bars.
for Jeremy Hammond. Solidarity. I'm very surprised at this accusation. I even thought of actually approaching Turkish intelligence and because I have nothing to hide and I've never done anything aside from my job and I'd like to make that apparent to them. However, I am a bit worried because as you know and as, as the viewers know, that Turkey has been labeled by Reporters Without Borders as the largest prison for journalists. So I am a bit frightened about what they might use against me. Uh, we were some of the first people on the ground, if not the first people, to to get that story of those Safiri militants going in through the Turkish border from the Bab al-Hawa Rihamli border being sent in. Uh, I got images of them in, in World Food Organization trucks. Cry fascism shall not pass. Fascism shall not pass. Fascism shall not pass. Fascism shall not pass. 